last time on Will Be Wild. And that's when I'm being tased. You hear me screaming. How did you get get to that point? What happened in your life? Alex Jones and InfoWars were the ones who kind of put it out there, you know, that there's other news that's not on the TV. You don't have to be that bright to see that it's it was something wasn't right and it was rigged and there's all these people saying stop the steal. You know, you had a person of authority in the former president of the United States who was perpetrating this lie that his election had been stolen from him. But why? Am I mental? Am I, am I just that stupid? There's like people that are fundamentally good. They do bad things. I believe that Donald Trump is a um, an evil person. He's not a good person that does bad things. He's a bad person that does evil things. In Danny Rodriguez's interview with the FBI, there's this one moment I couldn't stop thinking about. It's when Rodriguez is asked when the idea of civil war became real to him. And there's a passing reference to some suitcases. Well, when they said that Joe Biden won the election, and I saw a lot of video footage of them, like, stealing... Like, the, the pulling suitcases the, underneath the, the yeah, table and all that. Yeah, and there was, like, there was posted... The word suitcases goes by so fast, you could easily miss it. But it caught my ear. So... We knew that we knew that our 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 system was not. There's no point in voting anymore. It's over. I've heard so much about these suitcases of ballots under the table. In our reporting for this podcast, they've come up over and over again. The story goes something like this. There was a polling site in Atlanta, Georgia, at the State Farm Arena. A pipe was leaking, gushing water into a room in the arena. Those parts are true. The fictional part of the story is that workers used the leak as a pretext to clear the area in order to swap out suitcases of authentic Trump ballots for fake Biden ones. There were multiple state and federal investigations of what happened. Elected officials and high-level prosecutors debunked the claim over and over again. But Trump kept coming back to the lie. Uh, If we could just go over some of the numbers, I think it's pretty clear that we won. won He brought up the suitcases on January 2nd in a call with the Georgia Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffensperger. You might remember this call. It's the one where Trump asked Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. They weren't in an official uh, voter box. They were in what looked to be uh, uh, suitcases or trunks, uh, suitcases, but they weren't in, uh, in voter boxes. Uh, the minimum number... Conventional news outlets didn't really talk about these suitcases. Or if they did, they basically said the story was bullshit. But if you're someone like Danny Rodriguez, you heard something else entirely from right-wing media or Fox personalities, like Sean Hannity. Several large, mysterious suitcases, yeah, they believe filled with ballots, were rolled out from under a table. 
This episode is about how false claims like the suitcase full of ballots go from fringe to mainstream. And the ocean of disinformation we're all swimming in now. Because the next election, and everyone after that, depends on our capacity and willingness to push back against the rising tide of lies. From Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music, this is Will Be Wild. I'm Andrea Bernstein. Chapter 6, The War on Pineapple. We're going to get to the suitcases. But first, I want to talk about the part of our government that was trying to stop that kind of story from spreading in the first place. There's an agency inside the Department of Homeland Security called CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. It does other things, too, but part of its mission is election security. CISA was started during the Trump administration, and its first director was a man named Chris Krebs. So whether you want to call me a swamp creature or whatever, not that you did, but, you know, I've, I've been here as a career and in and around the national security apparatus, particularly the homeland security space, since uh, 9-11. Krebs was a lifelong Republican who worked in homeland security under Bush. In 2017, he came back to government, working in this agency charged with election security for an administration that didn't seem that concerned about the security of elections. Let me just, let's just sort of back up for a second. So you go back in 2017, and when you go back, we already know that then-President Trump is rejecting the intelligence community analysis, that Russia hacked the election. He's already pushing back. What were you thinking about how to mediate that? I feel like the inflection in your voice was off a little bit there. It should have been like, what were you thinking because <laughs> uh, that's, I got a lot of those questions. While Trump was downplaying fears of Russian interference in the election, Krebs was on alert. We spent three and a half years thinking about election security and thinking about how would a determined adversary disrupt an election. And so we looked at things like, oh, well, they could hack voting machines and change votes. Now, when you hear the word hack, you might think of someone getting into the actual voting system and changing votes which was a real risk they were defending against. But the more likely was another, and that was the perception hack, the disinformation campaign. A perception hack. A campaign of lies whose purpose was to undermine Americans' trust in elections themselves and in democratic institutions. Those lies would basically get injected into American public discourse, and then they'd mutate and spread like a virus infecting what Americans say and think so severely that a lot of voters would no longer be able to tell the difference between what was true and what wasn't. So Krebs and his team developed a sort of vaccine against disinformation, something that could introduce the American people to the kind of disinformation that might be coming, to inoculate them against it, in hopes that when it showed up, they might be able to resist it. The concept here was we had to introduce the techniques and tactics of how adversaries would conduct a disinformation operation. The plan was to train state and local election officials on how to spot disinformation campaigns, how they work, what the telltale signs are, and then depend on those officials to educate the public. The problem was they couldn't use real-life examples of political disinformation to explain how disinformation campaigns work. 
because they were too political. Even just saying that this is how Russia does it, it would immediately go into, oh, Russia hoax. What they needed was an issue that any American could recognize as being controversial without being political. And one day at lunch, Krebs's team was thinking about the kinds of issues that fall into that category. We were looking for ways to communicate with the American people about mis- and disinformation that both resonated, was understandable and digestible. This is Krebs's top aide at the time, Matt Masterson. And we were literally just talking about food. They were debating, you know, what is it that that's really almost an entirely binary decision? They were talking about, like, salt and vinegar chips, which I love. Cilantro, I also love. But the thing that, that was just so dramatically 50-50, like love-hate, was Hawaiian pizza. And whether you like pineapple on your pizza. Where do you come down on the pineapple on pizza debate? Oh, it's disgusting. Terrible. <laughs> yes, it is horrible. That was it. They created a toolkit for election officials all over the country called The War on Pineapple, Understanding Foreign Interference in Five Steps. And it's a five-step process that begins with identifying the issue. So in this case, identifying the issue would mean that some foreign adversary would say, wow, people get really heated about whether they like pineapple on their pizza or not. Let's pick that. Step one, complete. Step two is moving accounts into place, meaning set up Facebook pages and Twitter and Instagram accounts that gather a bunch of followers and relentlessly hammer away at whatever the issue is. Pineapple on pizza is an abomination. Pineapple is a delicious topping. The third step is amplifying the issue. Those fake Twitter and Facebook accounts start picking fights online, trolling people who disagree. Politicians who benefit from the disinformation repeat it. Fringe media outlets think OAN and Infowars, the kinds of places that traffic in verified falsehoods. They start beating the drum over and over. You can imagine the headlines. Leftist snowflakes are ruining pizza and our country. Watch this member of Antifa swat a slice of pineapple pizza from the mouth of a hungry child. Fourth is getting mainstream pickup where you actually get it on, you know, whatever your targeted media outlet of choice is. Conventional outlets will report on the controversy itself, legitimizing it and bringing it to an even larger audience. No matter how you slice it, Americans are split over pineapple on pizza. But the fifth step, because the continued pressure of pushing the lie, is to take it into the real world, to have actual boots on the ground, people in the streets. Social media accounts start announcing rallies and protests. Those events get picked up by other like-minded groups. Suddenly, you have a bunch of stoked-up, angry people gathering to say that if you don't like pineapple on pizza, you're un-American and need to be stopped. The team at CISA developed this whole toolkit specifically because they'd seen Russia interfere in an American election in 2016. And they knew the disinformation was only going to get worse. In 2020, of course, there was a campaign to undermine confidence in the election. You know, mail ballots, they cheat, okay? People cheat. Mail ballots are a very dangerous thing for this country because they're cheaters. These remarks were from April. And throughout 2020, Trump kept repeating that mail-in voting was subject to fraud. The mail ballots are corrupt, in my opinion. And they collect them, and they get people to go in and sign them, and then they they're forgeries in many cases. It's a horrible thing. 
His campaign filed papers in over a dozen lawsuits to restrict mail-in voting. Judges rejected almost all of them. Still, from Krebs and Masterson's perspective, the war on pineapple was working. They couldn't stop the lies. But when it came to the people who actually oversee elections, the inoculations seemed to be taking hold. Election officials, both Republican and Democrat, loved the toolkit and used it to educate voters. Here's Masterson. We saw the state of Rhode Island and the secretary of state there take the war on pineapple product, localize it to Rhode Island with its own issue around uh, whether you use a spoon or a straw to drink frozen lemonade. I don't understand the issue, but it resonates with Rhode Islanders and talk to Rhode Islanders about mis- and disinformation elections. We saw the secretary of state of West Virginia, a Republican, go on a road show within West Virginia and then to other states talking about the mis- and disinformation campaign that was uh, executed in 2016 and how to get informed about elections in advance of 2020 so it can't happen to you again. By the time Election Day rolled around, the team at CISA felt good about their work. Sitting in the war room in Arlington, Virginia on November 2020 and afterwards, this was as smooth a presidential election as I've experienced in my career. We were doing phone calls and conference calls with with media um, every three hours, I think it was. And so I think we did our last one a little bit before midnight. And so hung around a little bit after that and then uh, hopped on my bike and, and rode home. In the wee hours of the morning, the president spoke from the White House briefing room. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election Frankly, we did win this election. <laughs> Which was, you know, it, it, that was kind of surreal. But yeah, tracking the, the president's statements. And it's just like, huh. Okay. Um, I didn't see any of that reporting, but okay. It took a few days for the media to call the election for Biden. In that window, in the weeks that followed, a post-election disinformation campaign got underway. It was coming straight out of the White House. They stopped counting for four hours, and a lot of things happened. Election officials across the country, Republican and Democrat, insisted the election was the most secure in American history. Krebs decided he had to do something, a little amplification of his own. So he issued a statement on their behalf, saying the system had worked. This was not just some random people. It wasn't just me. It was the actual state and local election officials. It were the people that, that monitor. It was, it was the vendors that understand how their systems work. This was the election community saying, hey, things went pretty damn well. Did you know you were going to be fired before you were fired by the it was by Twitter, right? Yes. Did you know that was coming? No, I did not. Krebs was standing in his kitchen when he learned. It was five days after he'd issued the statement. He looked up at his wife and said, I just got fired on Twitter. His five kids started tearing around the house, screaming, Daddy got fired. So Krebs decided to challenge the president's lies. He went on 60 Minutes. The next day, one of Trump's allies responded. Yeah, the guy that was on 60 Minutes that last guy, night. That guy is a Class A moron. He should be drawn and quartered, taken out at dawn and shot. 
This is from the War on Pineapple playbook. Because right there, you can hear the shift from step four into step five, when escalating rhetoric becomes a call to action. And I had to have a security guard in front of my house, someone with a gun for two plus months. And and these things, you never want to be in these positions. You never, ever want to worry about your kids playing in your front yard. You don't ever want to be there. After Krebs was fired, Trump continued to insist the election was stolen. Trump and his allies filed more than 60 lawsuits challenging the results, including in Georgia, which is where those suitcases come in. At about 8 o'clock in the morning, we're going to roll this back and show it to you. There you go. So now they're going to start pulling these ballots out from under this table. On December 3rd, local lawmakers held a hearing on alleged vote fraud. A volunteer lawyer for the Trump campaign played a short security camera video. Yeah, upper right hand, you see the gentleman in, in the red. So he just pulled one out. On it, you can see people walking around the state farm arena, pulling some wheeled bins. These are supposedly the suitcases full of fake ballots. So what are these ballots doing there, separate from all the other ballots? And why are they only counting them whenever the place is cleared out with no witnesses? This might not have turned into a huge deal, except that Trump had spread the word about the hearing to his 89 million Twitter followers. Step three of the war on pineapple, amplifying and distorting the conversation. The footage appears to show poll workers pulling ballots out of suitcases after they told poll monitors to go home. That night... What the hell? ...on Fox News... Testimony today, which networks weren't running, except a few, uh, was incredibly eye-opening. I was disturbed by this. All three primetime hosts ran with the story. Mysterious suitcases, potentially filled, we believe, with ballots, well, rolled out from under a table after partisan election observers were asked to leave the room. Sean Hannity is not saying there's any actual evidence. He's using words like potentially and we believe. But that's enough to fan the flames of disinformation. Now, the false story is viral. Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, looked into the supposed suitcase under the table incident and Barr's successor, acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, and a U.S. attorney in Georgia. Trump's acting deputy attorney general told the president to his face in the Oval Office, no, sir, there is no suitcase. You can watch that video over and over. There is no suitcase. The real facts didn't matter. Trump created his own alternate reality that he kept selling with the help of right-wing media and online accounts. And by the time Trump called on his supporters to meet him in Washington, the lie had set in. It wasn't just about specific claims in certain districts anymore. It was the entire election system. The system that Krebs and Masterson had worked so hard to protect was now being called into question. I, I felt crushed, honestly, Matt Masterson. All of our work, all of the hours I spent, my team spent, others within the federal government spent traveling, meeting with state and local election officials away from my family every week wasn't nearly enough. And that I had under, what I really underestimated uh, that I have to live with, and it's hard, 
is the scope and scale of it. No matter how much work you're doing on the local level, Masterson said, the tens or hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers of local elections officials could not compete with the president and much of the Republican Party and Fox News and all the rest insisting the election was stolen. You know what happens next. Step five of the war on pineapple. Boots on the ground. It's time that somebody did something about it. And Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution and for the good of our country. The afternoon of January 6th, at his speech on the ellipse, Trump was still talking about the suitcases. A pipe burst, water main burst, everybody leave which we now know was a total lie. Danny Rodriguez was in that crowd, listening. Election officials pulled boxes, Democrats, and suitcases of ballots out from under a table. You all saw it on television. Totally fraudulent. Chris Krabs was watching the events unfold. As you began to see people amassing at the Capitol on TV, were you feeling at that moment that there was a direct line from the challenges that had been made about election security? Were you thinking, okay, there's a direct line between those challenges and what is happening outside the Capitol? Absolutely. 100%, this was the inevitable outcome by the continued pressure of the big lie. There was no other possible outcome, frankly. And it's entirely consistent with how influence operations run, with how disinformation operations run. So January 6th, you know, unfortunately, no big surprise. After the break, cashing in on the big lie. After January 6, there was a brief window when it seemed like maybe the fever had broken. Trump was banned from Twitter and left the White House. Companies said they'd pull funding from lawmakers who voted not to certify the election. Mitch McConnell called January 6 horrendous. The cops who defended the Capitol got a shout-out at the Super Bowl. But Trump and his allies kept spreading the big lie. In early 2022, the RNC declared the riot legitimate political discourse. Polls found almost three-quarters of Republicans— do not believe Biden is the legitimate president. There's a question implicit in all of this. Why do it? Why suggest an insurrection is a normal tourist visit? Why tell people a leaking pipe was part of a plot to steal ballots? Why peddle these easily debunked, borderline absurd stories? I asked Matt Masterson, and he said basically, follow the money. He's thinking a lot these days about the incentive structure for disinformation. I think as we look to 2022 and 2024, what we need to be addressing is the fact that the incentive structure is so broken that more actors are incentivized to pursue this path of coordinated mis- and disinformation campaigns in pursuit of their own financial or, or political gains. 
Masterson says, behind disinformation, there is almost always the pursuit of money and power. And now, the disinformation isn't just about voting. Since the 2020 election, we've seen a pervasive, organized, coordinated mis- and disinformation campaign about COVID-19 and the COVID-19 vaccines. Which has led to boots on the ground at places like school board meetings. That's what boots on there. You have people showing up to resist vaccine mandates or mask mandates, items like that, because they've been fed this steady diet of narratives about both COVID and the vaccines. As the COVID disinformation has spread, so has the grift. We have seen a number of prominent anti-vaxxers make quite a bit of money off of their own content, whether that's you know, subscriptions to their various channels that they have or podcasts with advertisers uh, signed up or books or movies. Certainly, fame and fortune are motivators for many of these folks. There is money to be made in peddling ivermectin and colloidal silver toothpaste. There is really big money in peddling election lies. Ilya and I spent four years of the Trump administration reporting on how Donald Trump kept using the presidency for his political and private gain. That did not end when a new president took office. You've got an incentive structure in which lots of money has been raised and made, right? We see the fundraising by some candidates running for office right now uh, is massive using the narrative of uh, a rigged election to, to raise that money. Without the presidency or a Twitter platform. Donald Trump reported $122 million in the bank at the end of 2021, more than twice what the Republican Party had in its war chest. We see various grifters making money off of this. I mean, if you look at the amount of money that Sidney Powell's group has reported that they raised, it's, what, $14, $15 million uh, in the last several months. Sidney Powell is a pro-Trump attorney one of the loudest pushers of election lies. Powell filed a series of lawsuits contesting the election, all of which were dismissed. Over just eight months, Powell raised more than $14 million for an organization she controlled, The Washington Post found. And BuzzFeed News found that some of that money was spent on lawyers' fees for at least one January 6th defendant, a member of the Oath Keepers. And though Powell was fined for pushing lies in one lawsuit, the court-ordered payment was just under $200,000, a fraction of what her organization has raked in. Powell has appealed. And so in an environment where money and political fortunes are being raised off of this and there's no accountability for lying about it, you're going to see it expand and you're going to see it spread. I'll give you the, the optimistic spin, though. Uh, because I am optimistic in <laughs> this right. regard. Go ahead. I, I will. I, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people listening to this are going to want to know how you walk out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that that's the lousy side. Uh, the optimistic spin, though, is this. We've never, I've worked in elections since 2006. We've never had a national conversation about elections this publicly Americans are engaging in a conversation about their democracy right now and about how elections are run and about election offices and officials. It's not a healthy conversation currently, but we have an opportunity if we're willing to both fund elections, invest in them, invest in the infrastructure, invest in the offices, invest in the people. And if we're willing 
to amplify the voices of those election officials more widely over and over again, we have the ability to really educate on how we run elections. It's hard. I think we have a real opportunity here to to come out the other side of this uh, wounded, but more engaged and informed as a public. What I hear Masterson saying is, yes, the discussion that's going on is awful. But because people are talking about the way elections work, there's a slim opportunity there for success. And by success, we're talking about preserving democracy. Okay, I just need to push you on a lot, a lot of things that you just said. Great. Okay, let's start with this idea of conversation. I mean, it's getting talked about, but it's getting talked about in this way of, you know, like what we saw on January 6th, literal body against body, people talking about civil war because they don't think yep. Biden was the president. So to me, this is really not a conversation. This is a pretty bleak place to be in. So absolutely, it is a bleak place to be in. Uh, and one of the things, quite frankly, that that I don't think we've come to to terms with as a country about January 6th was the fact that we lost or severely damaged, I guess, one of our core characteristics as a nation, which is the peaceful transition of power. And we we didn't have that this time, and we need to come to terms with what that means. I like the way you present the optimism and then the counter argument. (laughs) Honestly, this is hard for me because I am an optimist. There's a list of things Masterson and others think need to happen. Social media needs to be more transparent. Local news outlets need support. Public officials who promote disinformation need to be ostracized. But Masterson takes hope from real-life examples. In Arizona, where despite a truly ill-intentioned audit, or fraud it as it was dubbed, the 2020 election results were ratified. Or in Michigan... The Republican Senate report in Michigan that says, no, the election was accurate. And here is the proof that the election was accurate. Or in Colorado. I'll give you a really clear example that's recent. Mesa County, Colorado. In Mesa County, a local election official seemed to be giving non-public information about the voting system to unauthorized people at a conference held by Trump ally Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. And a bipartisan group of her colleagues stood up to say, basically, this is not okay. The official was criminally indicted on charges relating to the information breach. She maintains her innocence. Masterson and Krebs are both in the private sector now. They're still focused on elections. Masterson worked with a group from Stanford recently on a report called Zero Trust. How do you secure elections if the losers won't accept they lost? In it, you talk to a lot of election officials who've been violently threatened, violently threatened as a result of misinformation and disinformation. And we know that a lot of these election officials are just calling it quits and and people are running who believe the disinformation. So I guess I would ask sort of how how do you grapple with that reality? Yeah, it's it's quite frankly what uh, worries me the most is we're losing career professionals that have run elections for any number of years that understand not just the nuts and bolts of how to run them, but the overall ethos of election officials, which is to run elections 
in a nonpartisan manner, what gives me hope there is I have, over 15 years, seen some of the most partisan people I've ever interacted with start out in elections. And they think they're going to come in and they're going to expose the fraud or they're going to expose the, the, um, you know, the plots to prevent uh, massive amounts of people from voting. And when they get in there, they realize two things. One, this process is complicated. This process is detailed. And this process requires an even hand uh, to run the election in, in a manner that favors neither Democrat or Republican. And two, that's good politics and that's good for your job. He thinks the system can hold. There's some evidence to support Masterson's ideas from a really unlikely place. City Council member and former Mrs. Idaho, Natalie Jangula. Ilya interviewed her for the first episode of this podcast. It's my time to step in and make changes and be a part of something bigger than me. She went to Washington, D.C. on January 6th to protest what she saw as a stolen election. Within a year, she filed to run for office herself. It's very easy. You go on the website and they have paperwork that you have to fill out. She registered to run in August 2021. She won a close race against another conservative in a nonpartisan election in November. Ilya talked to Natalie after she won. He wanted to know why she accepted the results of her own election, given that she thought the 2020 election was stolen. I know you had a lot of questions about the 2020 election. Are you confident in your own election? Like that, that the election where you were elected was conducted fairly and properly? Yeah, I absolutely do. I met with the Canyon County Commissioner prior to, that's our county commissioner, and he explained to me the the process of how the elections work and the programs used, and he kind of went through that course with me. And I absolutely think Idaho does a really good job at, you know, making sure that their elections are are fair. Generally with elections in the states, like, do you think our elections are run fairly? Do you think Americans should have confidence in in our elections? In the aggregate, I think yes. But of course, there's always going to be exceptions. Nothing's ever going to be perfect in elections. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. And, you know, I, I think that in the aggregate, I think the American people should, should feel safe and that our elections are, are fair. But significantly less <laughs> with this last election. And again, I mean, I think that there's still a lot that needs to come out. So it'll be interesting to see the midterms happen coming up this year in 2022 and what kind of dynamic shifts we'll make because of that. When you listen to Natalie, there's a clear takeaway. That other election, the one that went the way I didn't like, that was stolen. Mine was all good. This is not a formula for a small d democratic future. But there is something in there. The part where she says, I spoke to my local election official and he made me feel confident that builds on what Masterson is talking about. What was it specifically that the local official in your county told you that made you confident in your election? He explained the process and he he talked about the machines that we use. Um, and to me, I, I felt that I could trust that. And Idaho doesn't have any history of, you know, there being evidence of 
this type of fraud going on. And so I think all of it just together kind of just made it feel comfortable. It's a single example. To replicate it with every voter who believes the disinformation they're being fed would be impossible. But it is a small kernel of hope. In the fall of 2021, Chris Krebs made a round of media appearances, warning what will happen if those slim hopes don't pan out. He said the lesson of January 6th is not that the system's held, that we somehow dodged a bullet. No, we didn't dodge a bullet. That was a practice run. That was an A-B test. Which works, which doesn't. Now we know how to refine the message going forward. Right? Insurrections without consequences are just practice runs. He said... You can't fight disinformation with truth. That is my biggest concern about the run-up to 2022 and 2024 beyond that, is that we've lost the narrative. It was never the point to have people believe or disbelieve a specific set of facts. It was to have the rational thinkers lose the ability to understand what what the truth was, what the facts were, to doubt the system and cause chaos. And therefore, you don't know what's true anymore. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's where we are. And, uh, you know, when you have, you know, virtually an entire political party embracing mm. that trend, it's, it's an anti-democratic death spiral. When we spoke, Krebs elaborated for me. He was a Republican all his life. But he's willing to call the party out and say that much of the Republican Party is now fully invested in disinformation around elections. And I, I, it just, what infuriates me, what infuriates me is people trying to cast this as a political polarization issue. That is nonsense. This is a liberalism. This is a departure from democratic ideals. And these are, this is a, a party that is being overrun by those that are apparently pretty damn cool with authoritarianism and autocracy. How did we get here? Is it, it can't possibly because one guy, the former president, led us here. There's something go, so there's something else going on here. And, uh, you know, we, we need to get to the bottom of this really damn quick. Next time on Will Be Wild, the doomsday scenario. How close are we to the possibility of a military coup? The sense was that a show of force was needed. The president, I think, felt like he looked weak, and he wanted to show that he could be powerful. Mr. President, are you prepared to use the military against U.S. citizens? Press, press, we're going. Press, let's go. What would happen if we had a president who is unrestrained by the traditional norms of the office and also unrestrained by his political party. And how could such a president use the awesome power of the presidency and the control over federal agencies? We're getting ready to go to war with the American people. That's the battle space. So you really could have the makings of a coup that could literally destroy our democracy. I mean, I, I, I can envision something like that 
being possible. And that what scares the hell out of me. Belief in the chain of command and the probity of the chain of command is the most precious thing that an army has. And that once the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's awfully hard to put it back in. Be Wild is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's hosted by me, Andrea Bernstein, and Ilya Maritz. Our senior producer is Kat Aaron. Our producer reporters are Christine Driscoll and Alice Wilder. Our associate producer is Marie-Alexa Cavanaugh. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Production on this episode by Annie Brown. Fact-checking by Jane Drinkert. Our sound designer is Hannes Brown, who also composed the original music. Pineapple's head of engineering is Raj Makija. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson de Rocher. Legal review also provided by Katie Alimohamadi Crown and Sarah Schwartzman at Donaldson Califf Perez. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street, with support on Will Be Wild from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our managing producer is Candice Manricus Wren. Senior producer is Eliza Mills, and executive producers are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. Special thanks this episode to John Heilman and Marshall Eisen of the podcast Hell and High Water, and thanks to Mike Spees, Meg Kramer, Diara Jeffers Towns, and Jessica Houston.